Today's episode is brought to you by Me Undies. Get 20% off your first order at MeUndies.com slash Gilbert. Our sponsor today is one of the premier independent labels in the world. DFA Records, based out of downtown New York City and co-founded by James Murphy of LCD Sound System. DFA Records is proud and excited to release the second album from Greek singer, songwriter, production guru, and all-around genius savant Larry Gus. His new album is entitled I Need New Eyes. This new album sees Larry Gus moving slowly out of his sample bass roots and now using clearer songwriting structures as his starting point. His lyrics stare intensely into obsessions, anxieties, and inadequacies while the music he makes takes on vibrant, sunny, psychedelic pop, percussive, polyrhythmic drums, and multi-layered dense arrangements. Before many critics have compared Larry to everyone from Mad Lib to Caribou to Panda Bear, it is safe to say on this new album, Larry Gus has truly found a voice of his own. This fall, Larry will be on tour with the DFA alumni Yacht Inn. October and November, playing both East and West Coast, as well as a very special performance at the DFA Halloween Party at Palisades in Brooklyn, New York. Larry Gus's new album is available for sale in multiple formats, including limited pressings on blue vinyl, red vinyl, black vinyl, CD, and digital. DFA Records has been releasing music since 2001, including such iconic indie dance bands as LCD, Sound System, The Rapture, Yacht, Holy Ghost, Hot Chip, Factory Flaw, and the Juan McLean. Visit the DFA online store at store.dfarecords.com for more details and to order your copy today. And for 20% off your online order, use coupon code GILBERT at the DFA store.
Ich ist Dracular Gottfried and welcome to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. Halloween episodes, part one and part two. First up, we talk to the daughter of the legendary Vincent Price, Victoria Price. We talk about everything from Dr. Fives to the Invisible Man Returns to my favorite, the Tingler. So, enjoy part one of our super spooky Halloween special. Get ready now to listen to Victoria Price. Afterwards, you'll wish you were dead. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. Our guest is a designer, author, art consultant, and public speaker whose work has appeared on HGTV and in many design publications. She is also the only daughter of a man we talk about frequently on this show, the legendary Vincent Price. Her acclaimed biography about her famous father, Vincent Price, a daughter's biography, was published in 1997, and she's agreed to take some time out of her busy schedule and personal appearance schedule to join us for our special Halloween episode. Please welcome to the show the talented Victoria Price. Wow, I sound so amazing. You just walk around and introduce me wherever I go. We can arrange that. We can have them follow you, Victoria. And awesome. introduce you go in front of me would be great. Okay, better. Then, you know. And perfect. and I should tell you, a few feet uh, to my left, right when you walk into my apartment, are four life masks. There's Lon Chaney Jr. Bela Lugosi, Al Pacino, and Vincent Price. Wow. In your house. <laughs> yes. I'm in, I am impressed. <laughs> How many people have a, a life mask of, of your dad in their foyer, Victoria? You know, not even I have a life mask of my dad in my foyer. So, um, you know, that is rare praise. Wow. I could probably make a copy for you. <laughs> we'll certainly take a picture and send it to you. And I remember I met your father twice. And one time I was one of the regulars on the uh, the rather dismal uh, Thick of the Night. That was Alan Thick's show. And... Um, while I was on there doing one bit, I started to fall into, you know, going, oh, it's the crawling hand. 
and something. You know, I was doing like a whole Peter Laurie thing. And then I sit down and I feel, and, and Alan Thicke is doing the good nights and he's going, hey, good night, everybody's been in the shoe. <laughs> And I feel, and Mama Doon leaves the lane on the road tonight. Closing theme song. And, and I feel a, a large hand on my shoulder, and I turn around, and I'm staring face to face with Vincent Price. Wow. And, and, and Vincent Price says to me, with a smile on his face, I loved your Peter Laurie. <laughs> that's great. And I thought that's the greatest compliment you could get. Exactly. Wow. And he gave, you know, he gave the eulogy at Peter Laurie's uh, funeral. So. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. tell I I know he was he was good friends with Laurie and Karloff. Mhm. Oh, very very close with Boris. They were dear friends and and really you know, pals. They they really respected and loved one another. And um, he, oh, oh, I should say, and then I'll let you talk. I'm just so thrilled about the times I met your father. The second time I met him was at a horror convention that was being broadcast, and I went up to him and I said, oh, you probably don't remember this, but we were both on the Alan Thicke show. And he looked up at me, grimaced, and went, oh, yes, that was a terrible show. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> now, Love that. Now, this is interesting, and both Frank and I commented that uh, we had Boris Karloff's daughter, Sarah, on the show, and she hated horror movies. Yeah, didn't watch them. No, I know. Neither of us really loved them. I've grown to be able to enjoy them, but for me, and I think it was the same for Sarah, neither of us really wanted to watch our dads do horrible things, or worse yet, have horrible things done to them. Interesting. Yeah, I saw you interviewed, uh, Victoria. You said Laura was your favorite of your dad's Laura is my favorite. I films. love it. But the other day I watched Theater of Blood. I, it was hilarious. Well, that was, was so campy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was great. And so it, it was with a whole um, dinner. And so they stopped it during, you know, between the courses to tell what we were eating. And it, people just were yelling at the screen and laughing and <laughs> having the best time. And I have to say it wasn't scary at all, although I did have to close my eyes during the poodle pie part. That right, right, right. And, and when, that. when you mentioned Laura, I remember one of my favorite Vincent Price lines is in that. Someone asked him, like, do you know a lot about music? And he goes, I don't know a lot about anything, but I know a little <laughs> about practically everything. Yes, I know that line. <laughs> Great line. Great line. And, and how, how did your father, I mean, he was very versatile as far as he could do classics, he could do comedies. How did he feel about doing horror? I think he was really grateful for it when it came around. First of all, House of Wax, which was his first real horror film, came right after he had been taken off of one of McCarthy's lists. 
So he had not worked during the McCarthy era. He was gray listed and he hadn't worked in over a year, which was really hell for him. So right after that, he basically then got offered two parts and one of them was House of Wax and that started the whole career. And if you think about it, that was during the 50s. And the actors who were working during the 50s were people like Brando and Dean, of course, and they weren't classically trained, you know, actors with beautiful voices and great elocution. And so for my dad to have this new career and to reinvent himself completely in the 50s and 60s, he was completely grateful. Yeah. I think. And how did he get off the list? He, what he said to me was that he knew some nice Republican ladies from his art life, and uh, he called in a favor. But what calling in a favor meant was that he was interviewed by the FBI, and he had to sign a very long document. And I found the document. It was one of the last things I found when I was cleaning out his house. It was in a manila envelope hidden behind his air conditioner. And in it, he said a lot of things that I think he was not proud of. And yet he kept the document because it was one of the scariest things he'd ever done. And so he felt that he had to keep it because it was proof that he had cleared his name. And yet he he wrote things like anyone who pleads the fifth is un-American, which was not something he believed. And yet he did it. So he was kind of strong armed into doing that. Oh, absolutely. It was that or um, he saw what had happened to his friend. Mm-hmm. Did, did, and it was did he have terrible. to did he have to name names? No, he did not name names. Oh, yeah. How did he get gray listed in the first place, Victoria? I know it's a it's a sensitive subject, but you talk about it so openly in your book. I think pretty much everybody who was to the left of center was accused of being a communist. For my dad, it was a list called the pre-war anti-Nazi sympathizers. So if you were against Hitler before we declared war on Hitler, then you must have been a communist. And my dad was very active in in raising money for a lot of Spanish Civil War causes and, and other causes. And there were a lot of people on that list. Eleanor Roosevelt was on that list. But <laughs> Good company. He, yeah, very good company. But he worked with um, Lillian Hellman and Dorothy Parker to do a lot of fundraisers for the Spanish Civil War relief. And I think that that's what got him on the list and kept him out of work. And, and I think Charlie Chaplin was accused of the same thing, which sounds mm-hmm. so ridiculous mm-hmm. that uh, you must be an enemy because you don't like Hitler and the Nazis. Right. Yeah. <laughs> which... Nowadays seems like just beyond insanity. Oh yeah, but you know it's it's not impossible to imagine something like that happening again. Oh oh yeah. <laughs> you talk about playing villains, uh, Victoria, in the Turning Point uh, House of Wax. But even before then, he played he played some heavies in Dragon Wick. Gilbert and I were talking about the Invisible Man Returns. He he was a character actor, but he dabbled in playing bad guys. He wanted to be a character actor. He admired Spencer Tracy. He admired Edward, Ed, 
Edward G. Robinson. He admired, you know, so many of the, the character actors, Jimmy Cagney. But Hollywood wanted him to be a leading man. They saw him as a matinee idol. In the early photos of him, some of the Harrell shots that were taken and other shots, he was really sort of groomed to be a leading man, and he was as handsome as any of the leading men. He just wasn't comfortable with that. Interesting. And um, So he wanted to play villains, and, and you're absolutely right. He did play villains. He played... Uh, many parts in, in his Fox years in the 40s, even the prosecutor and the song of Bernadette. And that came out of being on Broadway and doing a play called Angel Street, and Angel Street what became Gaslight. So uh, he sort of got into it by, in a way, insisting that he be cast in more character roles. And didn't they offer him a million-dollar contract at one point, and he turned it down? Mm-hmm. Yep. They offered him, at the beginning of his career, right during the Depression, a million-dollar movie contract. And he was the one who had the courage and the humility to talk to his co-star, Helen Hayes, who was, of course, the first lady of the American theater and incredibly famous and he asked her advice and she was the one who suggested to him that he turn it down because she felt that he hadn't learned enough. He, he didn't know enough to be able to uh, really have a long career if he didn't really learn his craft. And so that's what he did. What was Angel Street the, 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 uh, the, the show where he was supposedly so convincing in the, in the murderer role that audiences hissed at him? Oh, yeah. And he loved that. (laughs) Now, in the movie The Fly, which is one of my favorites, he's sitting with another actor at the end, and I forget that actor's name. Herbert Herbert Marshall. Herbert Marshall. Herbert Marshall, Marshall. yes. So there's a scene at the end, Vincent Price and Herbert Marshall are there on a park bench and they they killed the large half man half fly but they never found the other <laughs> one that was mainly a fly right. and at the end of the movie there's a, there's a spider web and caught in the spider web <laughs> is a half man half fly going help me help me oh, it's iconic and yeah. and uh, Herbert Herbert Marshall, Herbert Marshall, yeah, yeah. Uh, Vincent Price said in an interview that he and Herbert Marshall could not keep a straight face. Oh no, they were in hysterics. And, and if you look at it, if you look at the clip, you can see they're barely, barely holding it together. <laughs> and yet, and yet, as a kid, and and and, and well. As a kid, and well into my 20s and 30s, that is a terrifying scene. Yeah. It's scary. But I, I remember oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember him saying in an interview that they ruined so many takes because they were just like doubled over. Oh, <laughs> yeah, completely doubled over. Exactly. <laughs> 
You know, you mentioned too, Gilbert, you were talking about how he was good in comedies. And I found it interesting in my research, uh, Victoria, that he, he loved uh, Champagne for Caesar, which is a movie we've talked Love. about. Yes. Uh, Love Champagne for Caesar. He wish he'd been given more comedies. And if you think about it, even um, the, let's see, uh, his kind of woman, another one. Right, he was right. hilarious. I mean, so over the top. And right. loved doing that. I remember an episode of the Jack Benny show where uh, Jack Benny and Vincent Price are both in competition to be the romantic lead in an Irene Dunn movie. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, yes. <laughs> Talking about, oh, God, that was hilarious. And the whole better, best oh, thing. Oh, yes. <laughs> that was brilliant. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, because he said, May the best man win. And he goes, it's made the bitter man win. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> and he exactly. goes, I know that. I went to Waukegan High School and majored <laughs> in English. <laughs> did Did you know Jack Benny at all? I never met him, no. But a little interesting piece of, of history. Prior to Jack Benny, probably the most famous resident of Waukegan was Vincent Price, my great-grandfather who invented baking powder. He had a huge mansion in Waukegan and is still sort of part of the lore of Waukegan. So there was a lovely little tie-in between Jack Benny and my dad, but I never got to meet him. Wish I had. Interesting. And we were talking before, a a little uh, trivia note, that your great-grandfather invented baking powder or maybe one of the first commercially sold baking powders. He invented baking powder. Oh, he invented it straight Uh, up. mm -hmm. That's fun trivia. I know. We're full of fun trivia here in the Christ family. What most people don't know about you is when you walk first walk into your apartment, there's yes. a photograph of you with your two beautiful children, and you're wearing a pair of underwear on your head. Yes. So you are clearly an underwear enthusiast. I, I am an underwear enthusiast. I marched on Washington. Did you? Underwear. I didn't yes. realize that. Yes. In the people, 60s. yes, people don't realize. And, and they were getting the police attack dogs after us and trying to hose us down. Well, I knew everything about you. Yes. <laughs> had no idea. Because I was marching for underwear. <laughs> now, everyone needs underwear. Most of us wear it every day. Some of us even wear a fresh pair every day. And that means we spend a lot of money on underwear. And if you want to wear something that... Uh, my life savings. Your life savings. into underwear. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a cause that's meant yes. so much to you. And that's what's great about MeUndies, by the way. They sell luxury underwear at half the retail price. All you have to do is go to MeUndies.com slash Gilbert. You pick out what what you like, the color you like, the type you like. There's no shipping. There's a money-back guarantee. And uh, if you don't love the first pair they send you, you get to keep it. You have yeah. nothing to lose. Yeah, and if you love the first pair, uh, you could go out with it. You can marry. You could date. Yes, yes that's you right. You can start. Uh, you know, I've never seen you in underwear, but I have you pegged for the type that wears the okay, boxers here, with the little I'm going to take my pants off right now. <laughs> Just go to MeHundies.com slash Gilbert and you'll get 20% off your first order. That's 20% off an already great deal. It's great underwear. It's an amazing price. And it helps support our show. Uh, they also have socks, sweatshirts. Just think, Gil, socks. You could like the ones you swiped from Steve Buscemi's firehouse. Uh, yes, yes. And, and uh, I just want to uh, sincerely apologize 
for never standing in front of you in my underwear. <laughs> well, listen, yeah. our relationship is still young. Yeah. So one last time, that's MeUndies.com slash Gilbert, M-E-U-N-D-I-E-S dot com slash Gilbert to get 20% off your first order. And Frank, I'm going to take my underwear off now Go for to it. show how much I respect. Go, buddy. <laughs> And here's an, another one that that I remember. It was shocking to me. It was in your book, and and I think when him, uh, your your father growing up was actually anti-Semitic and pro-Nazi. Yeah, yeah. because he came from St. Louis, uh, very German, uh, and and really what I looked up and and found because I was shocked by it was that that was really the norm among sort of upper-middle-class, well-educated Americans. And let's face it, Roosevelt himself turned away boatloads of Jewish refugees. Sure did. absolutely war. right. So, you know, I wanted to really understand it because it was so not my father. And in fact, by the time he was in his 40s, he was awarded... Uh, something sort of a big tribute by the Jewish Anti-Defamation League. So he was very, very much um, the opposite of anti-Semitic and and very pro-everything. I mean, any group he could support, he supported. So he was the least racist, least um, biased person I'd ever met. So the reason I wrote about it in the book is to prove that anybody can overcome the prejudices of their upbringing given half a chance. Yeah, because he went from being pro-Nazi and anti-Semitic to raising money for Jewish causes. Exactly. And had countless Jewish friends and African-American friends. He was absolutely not at all anti-Semitic or racist or anything. But as a young man, of course, he was exposed to what he was exposed to and that was what he learned it was probably what was what was happening growing up in the midwest in a conservative town at that at that time sure it was exactly. all around and and he wound up being friends with peter laurie who was laszlo lowenstein right well you know he had i mean most of his many of his best friends were jewish most of his best friends were jewish and edward g robinson oh yes right yes. Right. Fanny Bryce was one of his dearest friends, and her son, Billy Bryce, uh, William Bryce, the painter, was really, I think, his best male friend of 40 years, so not anti-Semitic at all. <laughs> and that's really, why I, that's really why I wrote about it, because it was important for me to show that somebody could be brought up one way and recognize that they had been culturally um, taught one thing and could easily change. And do you remember from meeting Peter Laurie? No, never met Peter Laurie because I think he died in '66, so I was little. And you, but you, you visited some of the some of your dad's film sets, didn't you, Victoria? I did, I did, and uh, certainly the ones as I got older, like Theater of Blood, and and those those I visited. Oh, did you get to? Uh, did you visit any of the uh, the Fives film sets? I did, and of course, my dad was great friends with with Joe Cotton from the Mercury Theater days. Right, so one right. of the things I I remember really well was going to dinner at at Joe Cotton's house, and what a lovely man he was in London. 
Tell us about the Mercury Theater, all the people who are on that, in that. Yeah, amazing, amazing group of people. So one of the cool connections is that my grandfather, so my dad's dad, also named Vincent Price, went to high school in Wisconsin, and one of his closest friends in high school was a kid named Richard Wells, who was Orson Welles' dad. And so Orson, of course, started the Mercury Theater, and my dad was a part of it, along with Joseph Cotton and Norman Lloyd, who is still with us. Oh, yeah. We're trying to get him for the show. Lifelong friends. Lifelong Think Everett Sloan was one of the actors in there. Yeah, Everett Mm -hmm. Sloan from Citizen Kane. Sure. And most of the people that Wells would use in his movies were uh, people that he got from when he he knew during the Mercury Agnes Theater Moorhead. days. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And John Hausman, too, I think, was involved with that, with the Mercury Theater. Was he not? Oh, yeah, John Hausman, absolutely. And, and one really quick and probably the easiest uh, five minutes of work your father ever did was, but still makes me laugh, is the very ending of Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a cigarette appears out of nowhere uh, after they think they've killed off all the monsters, the Wolfman, Frankenstein, yeah, and They're Dracula, in the rowboat, right? And and a cigarette lights up in midair and goes, oh, I was hoping to join in. I'm the invisible man. <laughs> I know. And Hilarious, he was, right? He, he was a good yes. invisible man in, in uh, The Invisible Man Returns. He was an awesome, well, with that voice, why not, right? Yeah, I mean, you think about, you know, House of Wax being a turning point for him playing heavies. But as I said before, he's he's in Tower of London. He's in The Invisible Man Returns. He's got that little part in, in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yeah. So even though you're seeing these character roles, every couple of films, he's also playing a villain. Dragonwick, of course. Which I love. Which was one of his favorites. Yeah, he's, so he's wonderful in that. Yeah. And then, of course, by, I guess, as you were saying before, by 53, by, by the time House of Wax comes out, the conversion is complete because he's so damn good in that film. Oh, he's amazing. But I think one of the reasons he's so good in that film is that if you think about the storyline from the point of view of somebody just having come out of not working and being gray-listed, it's the story of a man whose entire life's work is destroyed. And he exacts his revenge. So I think it was something that my dad could sink his chops into. Well, interesting timing. He's 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 just I, I no matter how many times I see that film, he's so unsettling. With a young Charles Bronson. Oh yes. Char- oh yeah. Charles Buczynski. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um oh and at at the end of it, I think I think it's the end, he holds up a wax Charles Bronson head and points it, points his arm out to the right. camera right, to make it look like Charles Bronson's severed head is jumping out at you. I know. Martin Scorsese still calls it the best, uh, the best American film in 3D. You know, my dad really felt that the reason it was so good for a 3D film, because a lot of 3D films of, of that period were schlocky, was because the director... Only had one eye. Yeah, we were so, talking yes. about yes. <laughs> yeah, Andre Detoth. Yeah. Yeah, Andre Detoth. You couldn't so see in 3D. How, how did he know any of it was working? 
I think people just said, you know, throw something in. So we did. If you think about it, it's not really, it's not really focused on that. Whereas a lot of the other 3D movies were gimmicky. Yeah, like Buana Devil and some oh, of the, yes, some of that those was other the first one knockoffs Buana that were Devil. That, that were coming out. He's just terrifying in that film. And and I've recommended, and I love this film, and it's you know undeniably silly, but works and is so much fun. And that's the Tingler. Oh yeah, that's a great one. It's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> Because what I remember is that was well he he was friends with William Castle yeah and William Castle was one of these real showmen yeah he's come up to, on the show yeah, yeah he'd have a gimmick for each picture to get the suckers in and for the Tingler certain seats were wired with a buzzer percepto yes <laughs> yeah that's right that's what it was percepto. called percepto yeah exactly and so in the movie. The Tingler gets loose in a movie theater, giving Vincent Price the excuse to scream both to the people in the movie and the people watching the movie, scream, scream for your lives. The Tingler is loose in the theater. Scream. (laughs) (laughs) How do you like Gilbert's impression, Victoria? It's awesome. It's, uh, it's a problem. You know, practically feel like I'm on the phone with my father. And, and when when they're all screaming and Vincent Price is yelling for them to scream more, then finally they catch the tingler and Vincent Price very calmly goes, the movie will be starting again soon. <laughs> Totally forgetting that a monster centipede was attacking people in the theater. I know. I, I think so that's part good. of his talent, Victoria, that he could take nonsense like that and, and make it dramatic and believable. He could sell it. Well, yeah. I mean, most people would have phoned it in or thought it was utterly ridiculous, but he just jumped in. But that was really how he approached life. He just jumped in. And he always seemed like... If if it was something silly like that, you always sensed there was like a gleam in his eye that he knew it was silly. Oh, totally. I mean, he was he was winking at the whole thing. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I was recent. We do a little episode uh, on Thursdays, uh, Victoria, as part of this show where Gilbert and I recommend films we love. And we were talking about the abominable Dr. Fibes, and I read, I guess you could uh, corroborate this, that, that he laughed so much going through the makeup process that they had to keep reapplying the makeup. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, you have to keep yourself amused somehow. I mean, that makeup would, must have been an ordeal. Sometimes he'd spend three hours in makeup. Yeah. And speaking of William Castle, before the Tingler, of course, and we brought up Percepto, there was a Merjo. There was the house on Haunted Hill. With with the skeleton right. that flies across the movie theater. It's wonderful. <laughs> right. Like a paper or balloon skeleton. 
You, you, you do a lot of these, Victoria. You do a, you, you do a lot of you speaking engagements. And have you seen the Tingler or a House on Haunted Hill with an audience in with with the gimmicks? I just saw House on Haunted Hill with two hundred and fifty people in St. Louis at my oh. dad's childhood movie theater, the High Point. Oh, the, I love that, that. That I saw that in my research that the, his childhood theater is still standing. Yeah, and they've redone it. It looked beautiful. So that was really, really fun. Did they rig it? Did they yeah. pu- they pull the, the the skeleton into the audience? And Amergo was there, but they didn't have him. Really, really, literally, the original Amergo was there, but he was sitting <laughs> on a rolling chair. <laughs> he, uh, Years ago, he here was it... not rigged up. But oh, I've he seen, wasn't. I've seen it with it rigged up. Oh, before. you have. It's a treat. Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I saw it years ago at the Film Forum downtown they would in new york where, we, where we're coming to you from they would do the they would pull the skeleton on the clothesline into the audience during house on haunted hill and and jumping totally out of order from subject to subject who us yeah <laughs> i i think i read that one of the jewish charity groups named vincent price like their honorary jewish member yeah, yeah the jewish anti-defamation league gave him an, an award that is amazing to go from being pro-Nazi, anti-Semitic to getting an award. Yeah, that's oh, running. That's running the gamut. Totally. Let Let's talk about the Poe films. Uh, oh yes, I mean the, the Castle films is an interesting period and in, of his career, and so so was uh, the Poe and AIP and Roger Corman. I think that was a great collaboration for my dad. He loved working with Roger. He Roger put together amazing casts. Yeah. Uh, and he got it done really well. We all know what Roger did for a lot of young directors and, and young actors. And I think he and my dad, it was one of those great partnerships for them both. Yeah, we, we had Roger Corman on the podcast. And he was hysterical. Funny man. Yeah. He's totally open about the fact that he'll do anything to save a penny. Yeah. <laughs> and, yet those, and yet those films, the Comedy of Terrors and The Raven, which were made really for a song, are yeah. so entertaining. They are. You put those actors together. You've got, you know, you've got Karloff and you've got Laurie and, and Nicholson and your dad and it's just they're just great to watch even though they cost a dollar 80 to make and i heard your <laughs> your father and peter Laurie and karloff like peter Laurie just didn't want to memorize the scripts anymore and that no, he no he he couldn't be bothered and he came out of that whole you know german expression of improv school so he kind of just made it up as he went along and I heard your father was fine with it, but Boris Karloff was getting annoyed that the dialogue was being changed. Yes. Yeah, the rumor is that your dad was wound up fi- found himself in the position of go-between, between Karloff, who had a certain kind of acting style, and Laurie, who had improvisational acting style. Is that true? Oh, yeah. He completely mediated between both of them. <laughs> and your dad was an Anglophile, right? I mean, so he liked, he, you know, he liked this stuff to begin with. Oh, yeah. And he loved being associated with Poe. Who wouldn't? Right. What a gift to be associated with one of the truly great original American literary voices and kind of forever associated with him. 
He's genuinely scary. We've talked about the Mask of the Red Death and the Pit and oh, Pendulum. Yes. I mean, again, they were made on the cheap, but they're, they're very scary. He's very scary in them. I think Pit and the Pendulum in particular. Yeah, well, the one where he's really horrifying is the Witchfinder General, which I don't know if you've even brought yourself to watch by this point. You said you can't I watch it. I have once. Okay. And yes, I think it's his most malevolent performance, and that was totally due to Michael Reeves, and it was just a miserable experience for my dad. But I think he he ultimately was, I wouldn't maybe go so far as to say grateful, but he certainly understood what Reeves was trying to get out of him. Michael Reeves was a young director who di- who died young. As, yeah, as, yeah, he as, committed suicide. Yeah, and they clashed. They famously clashed. I mean, there's a story, yeah. I don't know if it's apocryphal, where your father is on the set screaming, you know, I've, I've made 87 films, what have you done? I, I don't think he was very happy. That's for sure. <laughs> and, and yet again, a great performance in a movie that just, that just um, is very unsettling. Brutal. Brutal, that yeah. movie. They changed the name, I think, to The Conqueror Worm. Oh, yes, when yes. They so they it. could tie it in with the whole Poe thing, yeah. Right. Which didn't fool anyone. He's never been as dark in, on, on screen as he was in that movie. And, and talk oh, about... that was easily his most malevolent performance, for sure. Did it bother him? Did the, did the role stay with him? I mean, aside from the problems he had with the director. In my research, I, I, I was reading something about how he didn't like uh, when the AIP films got a little more gory. It wasn't so much the A. I mean, I think the AIP films, yes, but it was really the slasher films in general. And he, he, he really felt, and I think he's right, that what we can imagine is way more terrifying, always, always, than what, what we see. And it's one of the reasons why we're so terrified of hearing about plane crashes, because what we can imagine happening in a plane... You know, that's why everyone wants a camera instead of have, leaving it up to their vivid imagination. That's why the news jumps all over that. They don't jump all over other things that we can see, like train crashes in the same way. And and I think it really proves. And you said the same thing about sex scenes. You know, when the code was still there, you had to imagine what happened after the kiss. And that was way sexier than watching well, it happen. I, I myself like to see gratuitous sex scenes. <laughs> So, that shocks me. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where your father and I disagree. But I mean, it's it's very uh, it's been talked about a lot in the movie Jaws. The shark wasn't working properly and it looked bad mm-hmm. on camera. So Spielberg was uh, forced to hide the shark and it became really the fear of the water. Yes, exactly. And it worked for people. I have a friend, I went with her to the Keys, and we swam in a lake on the Keys that was easily a mile from the ocean, and she wouldn't get in the water. It was like, you know, a Saturday Night Live episode, Land Shark. A <laughs> shark was going to get there, she wouldn't get in the water. The Gilbert Gottfried Amazing Colossal Podcast Producer of the Month is DFA Records. Thank you, DFA Records. Be just like DFA Records and get rewarded for supporting our podcast. Head over to patreon.com slash 
Gilbert Gottfried. For a set amount each month, you can get some colossal benefits, such as access to new podcast episodes before anyone else, early access to tickets to live podcast tapings, exclusive video hangouts, and just added, I will record a personalized roast of you and only you so you can share with your friends me telling you what a schmuck you are. Well, I don't have to join Patreon for that. And you don't have to pay me either (laughs) because you are a schmuck. That I do for free. I want no money. That's my... I just speak Uh, the truth. I'm so blessed. You are a schmuck. So go to patreon.com slash Gilbert Gottfried. That's Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Gilbert Gottfried. Thank you for your generosity. And thank you, DFA Records. What a lot of people probably know your father from without even knowing your father would be that long introduction that he does in the music video thriller with Michael sure. Jackson. Sure. I mean, what an, what an incredible thing for him to get to do, to be associated with that. I think it was a real gift for him. But his last film... That was Edward Scissorhands. His last feature, yeah. His last he, feature. That he, yeah, that he acted in. Now, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, the casting is perfect. Vincent Price as a mad doctor is like, you know, that's, that's a shoo-in. That's a no-brainer. But I heard because your father at that point, he was older, and he was like, you know, the ailments that come with aging. And that the studio wanted to get rid of him. Mm, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that the studio wanted to get rid of him. I just heard that. But that could be. Well, I know they cut his part down significantly because of his health. Yeah. It was difficult for him. He had Parkinson's and he was, you know, emphysema. He was struggling. And and yet it's a it's a kind of a a, a nice swan song. That, oh, that, that it's film. an incredible swan song. I I think Tim gave him an incredible gift, introducing him to a new generation, writing a part for him that captured so many sides of my dad, all of his sweetness, I, I his whimsy, his love of poetry. Uh, you know, I I think it's a wonderful wonderful part. And Vincent, too, for for those of our listeners that haven't seen it, the Burton short from a few years earlier. Oh yes, which is oh, yeah. where he narrates. It's 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 also wonderful. We talked about Theater of Blood, and and uh, and I have to hear, <laughs> I have to hear your experiences or your memories from being on the set of Theater and Blood. Or was it the first Fives film? Was it Doctor Fives Rises Again? You know, mostly I remember Theater of Blood because we had a driver and he drove us out to the set. And we got out of the car, and all of a sudden, all of these just 
freakly scary people came up to me and they had no teeth and open sores and they started pawing me and asking for money. (laughs) What the hell is going on? And then my dad swept out of this old warehouse and said, that's my daughter, leave her alone, you horrible people. And that was all I heard of it. It wasn't until I saw the movie years later that I realized that they were the cast and he put them up to this. (laughs) The two fives movies are so bizarre. I mean, they're, they're black comedies. So is Theater of Blood. Oh, oh yeah. yes. Really. I mean, we talked about his gift for comedy. I mean, <laughs> I watched Doc- – I haven't seen uh, Dr. Fives Rises again in a few years, but I watched the original a couple of weeks ago because I recommended it on one of the episodes that Gilbert and I do. One of the strangest films ever made. Oh, my God. And I've, I've now seen it. I'm doing a tour with Alamo Drafthouse where we're doing dinner and a movie, and, and Dr. Fives is what they're showing. And so I've seen it quite a few times now. And I, who are the – who is Molnavia? Who the hell is she? Is she dead? Is she alive? <laughs> Yo, the weird I mean, assistant. I, I've now seen it, and I'm just stumped. I have not a clue. But why is he playing the organ? <laughs> it's like, what it's, well, that I thought he was an organist. Oh, that's he was an organist good. too. <laughs> yeah, he was, a, he was an right. organist, so that's good. But who the hell is she? It's very strange. And that 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 animatronic band. Oh yeah, truly, truly bizarre. Is and it, is that the one that has the mechanical shark? It's a mechanical snake. Uh, that I think I think that might be the second one. Yeah. I'm trying to think of all the deaths. Well, for, again, uh, we've talked about it on the show already, but for our listeners that haven't seen it, he's, a, he's killing, uh, one by one, he's killing the medical team that he ho- holds responsible for his wife's death, right? But he's not just bumping them off. He's bumping them off according to the Ten Plagues of Egypt. Oh, yeah. So Why you've not? got all these, like these great, remember the, Terry Thomas, they drain all his blood? Oh, it, yes. It's, it's a mason yes. jar. Yes. <laughs> And one guy's talking on the phone, and an arrow shoots out of the yeah, phone. That's a great one. That's a great. It was a catapult. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he, he, yeah, a unicorn. The unicorn. Excuse me. The it's the unicorn that catapults. You know, right. Of course. And one Why of them not? is frozen in his car with an ice machine. I love that one. And then the guy is flying the plane. Yeah. And is eaten by rats. That's incredible. It's, it's almost there are parts of it that are like a silent film. It really, it's it's uh, it's vaudevillian too. I mean, it takes its time. The, the 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 set pieces are hilarious. I mean, it's disturbing, and it gets right. scary in the end with the Joseph Cotton stuff yeah. when he kidnaps the boy. Right. But up until oh, then, and it, the, the the Brussels sprouts. Yeah, that's that, an awesome part. That's great too. Is the snake that you're talking about from the second film? Yeah, I think there's like a cobra. There's an Egyptian theme in the second yeah, film that he finds out. He smashes one because it turns out to be a mechanical one. And then the second one he's not scared of, and that's an actual cobra. Right. And it's odd, too. You were talking about the assistant. You know, he's so in love with his wife. <laughs> so who is this woman? Who is this strange? Exactly. Who the hell is she? She's, she's very otherworldly. But it is, it is such a funny film. I mean, it's a disturbing film, but so original. And now I... I have to play tabloid reporter, as always. In your book, you said that there were rumors of your father's, like, bisexuality. Mm-hmm. So what, 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 what was going on, and what did you find out there? 
At the time, I really didn't find out anything, but 20 years have passed, so there's been more information that's come through for me. But I think really what I found out overall is that my father was probably bisexual, but really most importantly, he he loved people. And so his friendships were probably vastly more important to him than uh, his sexual relationships. And he had very close friendships with men that he, he told me he felt that his, his wives never understood uh, his need to have close friendships with men. And, and they were, I think, a very important part of his life. And aside from Peter Laurie and Boris Karloff, wasn't he also friends with uh, uh, two other horror greats, um, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing? Oh, yeah. He and Chris were great friends, shared the exact same birthday, May 27th. Oh, yes. And Peter's birthday was the day before, May 26th. So they would often celebrate together. And, yeah, they were – he was very, very – fortunate in his friendships, but I think he was also an incredible friend. And I don't know if Christopher Lee ever did this with your father. I know he would do it with Peter Cushing. He would call him up and imitate all like these Warner Brothers cartoon characters. Oh, no. I've never heard that. That's hilarious. That's funny. There's a great clip of Christopher Lee on the, I guess it's the British version of This Is Your Life online, Victoria, that I'm sure you've seen where your dad shows up, mm-hmm. probably flies halfway around the globe to get there. And and Christopher Lee looks genuinely happy and surprised to see him. Yeah. No, they were they were really dear friends and, and I think shared a lot in common, both very erudite men, very interested in, in much more than just acting. It's interesting, too, about his sexuality. I mean, he married three times, but uh, it, it's. I found it interesting that you were so frank about it in the book. I felt that I had to be because so many people asked me, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to seem like I was shirking anything, but it was really Roddy McDowell who helped me with it because he said to me, we don't know what sexuality meant to your dad. And if we don't know that, then it's very hard to, to say what or who he was. And that's really why I got to the fact that to me, what was most important was his deep connections with people and his complete, complete lack of judgment. And that was really why I felt like I had to address it. Yeah, it was kind of uh, brave of you to do it. I mean, a lot of obviously well, a lot of biographies that are written by children are, you know, whitewashes of their parents' lives. I think there was a time in his life where he wished he could possibly have been a different person toward the end of his life. And, and I, I, he alluded to that to me with a sense of regret. And I never knew what that meant, whether that was about his sexuality, whether that was about uh, maybe taking different kinds of roles. I, I wasn't ever really clear on that. But I felt that, that he wanted to be remembered for who he was. He wanted to be remembered um, for for all of his complexity 
And that, I think, was the bottom line for me, not wanting to avoid that. And he was complex. I mean, he was a renaissance man. Gilbert and I were setting up for the interview, and I was telling him about how, if I have this right, your dad made his first art purchase at the age of 11? Mm-hmm. He bought a first-stage Rembrandt etching, uh, first-stage Rembrandt etching when he was 12. It took him three years of his allowance to pay it off. So and, and it, it was, I love that. How much did it cost? $37.50, but in the 1920s, that was not cheap. It's a fortune. What it would wow. Cost. Yeah. But he, you know, paid it off and... And he also was as he was as well known as an art expert during his life. He bought twenty thousand pieces of art for Sears that he sold. Um, you could buy a Picasso on your Sears credit card, oh, and that God. was very much because he was a populist, and he really felt that it was important that everybody have access to art, that people not regard art as the province of the elite. So that I think was very important to him. He was also as famous during his lifetime for his cooking. And that's big part of why I'm out on the road now, because he wrote a cookbook that Severe magazine named one of the hundred most important culinary events of the 20th century. And he, um, it was really, again, sort of this populist endeavor. He went all over the world collecting recipes, collecting experiences, brought them home. He and my mom, my mom would bring home design elements. They would recreate these experiences for their friends. And this cookbook what has become the eighth most popular out-of-print book of any kind, not just cookbooks. And it was so popular that a publisher approached us about doing a 50th anniversary edition. But he, he really was the original American foodie. Yeah, like I said, he was into everything. He was into art. He was into music. He was into into cooking. And it's funny how careers take shape because he was such a cultured person, and yet he became known for, not that they're mutually exclusive, but that he became known for horror films. Karloff, I think, is similar. Oh, yeah. Sue, he was a, a, a proper gentleman and a very cultured man, and they, and they became famous for playing ghouls, you know, for lack of a better word. I think part of it is because the horror fans get them. They really understand uh, Karloff and my dad. And the horror fans are very well-read, very cultured, people who are interested in, in a great many things. And so I think the horror fans very much embrace all of those aspects of my dad and, and of Boris as well. And so that's part of, the, you know, without the horror fans, my dad gets 3,000 Facebook likes a week. 3, Amazing. Yeah, I was Facebook looking at the page. It's incredible. I was looking at the, pay, at the Facebook page. There's so much good stuff on there. That's where I saw the movie theater in St. Louis that's still operating. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's oh, my oh, little oh. labor of love. And, uh, and, you know, for me, the fact that they get him, they really get who he was. They have kept my dad alive. There were so many people who were way, way more famous than Vincent Price during his lifetime, and he would have been the first person to tell you that. Like somebody like Robert Taylor. And Robert Taylor isn't remembered and loved. Like Robert Taylor's probably not getting 3,000 Facebook likes a week, I'm fairly sure. And I'm sure not. One, one thing Frank and I, we, we had on our show um, Adam West, who was Batman, and two of the cat women, Julie Newmar and uh, Lee Merriweather. And your mm. father 
was uh, one of the great recurring villains. One of my favorites. Egghead. Yes. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, tell us some of the horrible puns he would say uh, to taunt Batman with. Oh, he, you know, exactly extraordinary. Exquisite. That was a favorite. (laughs) He had a blast doing it. He had so much fun. And, and, you know, he had a kid. So I was born um, a month shy of my dad's 51st birthday. So he had this young kid, and he wanted my friends to know who he was. So he wanted to do all these things. And he was a kid at heart, so he wanted to stay hip to the younger generation, and he sure did. So he went on the hottest show on television. Exactly. And he did, exactly, I pardon me. But, you know, he did that with a lot of different things, if you think about it. He did uh, Mod Squad. He did Oh, Get yeah, Get Smart, Smart sure. Did, Brady Bunch. Yeah. yeah. And, and we've had people from all those shows. We had Barbara Felden from Get Smart. That's right. And Ken Berry and Larry Storch from F Troop. Oh, yeah. He was great I on F Troop. He was the I Count, know. Count Sforza. Yes, yes. Exactly. <laughs> he comes into the town with a black crow. Oh, yes. Named Brother. <laughs> <laughs> and di- didn't uh, your father and Peter Laurie have a short lived TV show where they were antique stealers? Oh my God! I know. I, wow, I, you've stumped I, I, yeah, me. Really? Yeah, I think they they were running an antique store, and I guess each antique that they pick out would be like the center of the story. Oh wow! <laughs> I have no idea. I don't remember this show. Okay, we've got a I, challenge for our listeners. I, another thing is, I remember when you watch those movies with Jack Nicholson. It's like. It's so funny because if someone would have, if you would have said to anyone back then, this Jack Nicholson is going to be a major respected superstar, I I think you would have laughed in their face. Oh, my dad and and all of them would have laughed. Absolutely, <laughs> they thought they thought it was complete nepotism. They the two producers of all the AFP films were Sam Arkoff and Jim Nicholson, and they thought Jack Nicholson was like his nephew. They gave him no end of grief. Oh yeah, <laughs> was there was there a relationship between James Nicholson and Jack See, Nicholson? I, no, no, I no, not at all. Just a coincidence. But so so right. they. So your father, Peter Laurie, and Boris Karloff all thought Jack Nicholson was basically this no-talent kid. Exactly. <laughs> and they just Hilarious. Totally Hilarious. Did you ever run into Nicholson to tell him that? Uh, I know Jennifer. She and I went to the same high school. Oh. His oh, that's daughter. pretty That's yeah. pretty cool. I mean, you yeah. know, we talk about his sense of humor. I mean, all of those shows, he's so good in comedies. Dr. Pin on Get Smart. He's the archaeologist who ties up the boys in the cave in the, in the Brady Bunch. In the Brady Bunch. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Counts Votes, we favorites. talked about on F Troop and, of course, Egghead. I saw, there's a clip, I don't know if you've seen it, Victoria, of him, of, of, of your dad on Family Feud in the 70s. Oh, yeah. I have with the seen cast it. of Hilarious. Batman, <laughs> which is a treat. Hilarious. And then he did all that cool stuff with the Muppets. Oh, yeah, and, and in the first season of The Muppets, yeah. of the Muppets, which is great. I even found a clip where, uh, I guess, uh, Kermit is guest hosting The Carson Show, 
So, so there's Jim Henson kneeled down behind the desk. Of course, you don't see him. Right. And your, your dad comes out as the first guest, and he's just so smooth about it. And he just he just works at it perfectly. He's got the he's got the timing down. It's a, find the clip online. It's just a pleasure to watch a pro who who knows how to work comedy. Get timing exactly. And nine hundred episodes of Hollywood Squares he did. Wow. Nine hundred. I always say Hollywood Squares paid for my college education. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> What do you think when you hear uh, 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 tributes like, I mean, John Waters did a wonderful tribute to your dad on TCM that I'm sure you've heard. Oh, that was fantastic. Really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And when you hear all the impressionists, you know Gilbert, Bill Hader oh, yeah. on Saturday Night Live. Bill I mean, Hader, yeah. They, they're they're done great. with. They must be done with such affection. You must love. You must love hearing them. And I think John. Of course, I love them. John Candy. John Candy too. To back in the day. Father. Oh yeah. John Candy's was hilarious. He he, he really, uh, you know, how many Facebook likes did you say? 3,000 a week. Incredible. We dream of those numbers. <laughs> yeah. His, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Oh, he's so iconic. People love him. Well, what do you got, Gil? Ah. Uh, Let's see. Oh, I've got a good one here for you, Victoria, before we run off. Did you, this is from uh, Mike Mc, Mc, uh, McPadden, who's our, one of our social media directors. He wants to know, as a kid, did you ever play with any of the Vincent Price toys, such as the Shrunken Head Apple Sculpture Kit or the Hangman Game? Uh, of course. <laughs> yeah. You I did. mean, what self-respecting kid wouldn't? I love that. In, in fact, there's an episode of The Simpsons where they're stuck in the house and it's raining. So they take out, uh, like, learning magic with Vincent Price. (laughs) Oh, I completely love that shrunken head thing. I think my mother was so pissed off because, of course, you know, you you dried it in over a light bulb in your lampshade. Right, right. (laughs) And wasn't there an electronic trivia game, too? Of some kind. Was there? Uh, yeah, I'm. I I will dig it out. Yeah, I don't know the name of it offhand. But what what do you want to plug, uh, Victoria? What's what's coming up? We know this is your busy season, Halloween. You mentioned <laughs> well, the, cook, the cookbook. The, the cookbook is really very exciting because we're doing all these cool events. We're doing these dinners all over the world. So we're doing, uh, the James Beard house is doing a dinner for us to celebrate this book in New York, which is a benefit for the James Beard foundation. And that's incredibly prestigious. We're doing a two and a half week tour of the UK, London, Manchester, Wales, and then Ireland and, uh, all to celebrate the cookbook. Harrods is opening its food halls half an hour early for us so we can have a special tour of the food halls because they're featured in this cookbook. So the whole cookbook thing is really, really cool and exciting. Tell us the name of the book again. It's called The Treasury of Great Recipes. Okay. And it's just, it's such an iconic book. You know, it really, the reason it's so important to me is I feel like it captures my parents' philosophy of how they live their life. And it really came down to to me to three words, explore, savor, and celebrate. They didn't just sort of make a movie and do what they had to do and and sort of 
do the minimum required thing. They went out and they saw everything. They learned about cultures. They learned about it through art. They learned about it through music. They learned about it through food. They learned about it through theater. And then it wasn't just sort of this bucket list mentality. They they would fall in love with things. And as I said, they would. my dad would get the recipe from a chef. My mom would bring back design elements. They would work out ways to share them with their friends. And so this cookbook has been so influential. I mean, people do dinners where they, people have blogged uh, a recipe a night, a recipe a week. Right now there's a contest going on for food bloggers in celebration of this. And the best, two of the best things I've heard in because this has been something I've been sharing with people. One is that people read this book out loud to each other, doing their best Vincent Price voice. (laughs) I love that. Because he wrote it all. Or they read it to each other as bedtime reading, because he tells little stories about each recipe in each restaurant. And it really was aspirational. It gave people pre-HGTV, pre-Food Network, it gave people an idea of what was possible, a way of living. And so I've written this new historic preface forward. And then Wolfgang Puck, who my dad championed, um, very early on wrote the new intro. And and then the other story that I just love, I, I was doing an Alamo Draft House event in Austin, and a couple came up to me and they had their vintage copy of the book that they asked me to sign and they said this this book has meant so much to us and they said we're not really religious people so 15 years ago when we got married we didn't know really what to have them pastor hold or the reverend or whoever so we thought what book means a lot to us and so they got married with the pastor holding the cookbook and it's just absolutely, I have a picture, they sent me a picture yeah. the other day. Uh, it's just absolutely beautiful book that my mom designed. It's got a leather, bronze leatherette cover. And so the new version, uh, you know, I had to make sure it looked as good as the old version. But it's a really, it's an iconic, iconic book. I mean, pretty much anybody who's a foodie knows about this book. And and it's it's really about my dad's omnivorous appetite, not just for food, but for life. That's what comes through. So Mm -hmm. for me, it's exciting because it's really about showing off the best parts of who he was and what a life-affirming, interesting man he was. And this is getting back to one person we discussed earlier. He must have had a lot to talk about with Edward G. Robinson. Oh, they were great friends. They became friends in the late 30s. My dad would follow uh, Eddie around the galleries in New York. And, of course, Eddie had a lot more money than my dad, and and he was a great collector of Impressionist art. And so he learned a lot about who the good gallery owners were and that sort of thing. And then they became great friends. And, in fact, one New Year's Eve... Uh, they were having, my parents were having one of their legendary New Year's Eve parties and there was a fire in Bel Air. And so the police shut down complete access to, um, to the whole area. And Edward G. Robinson came, went up to the police and he said, you have to let me in because these are my friends and they have an art collection and I have to help them save it. And the entire UCLA football team heard about the fire and, and the art collection was required viewing for the UCLA artistic department at the time. And so they came out and helped and it was just, you know, a great story, but yeah, Eddie, Eddie and my dad remained great friends their their whole lives. I love that story. 
And then he would say, Mashy, Rembrandt. <laughs> real, real quick, Victoria, tell the, tell Gilbert the story from the end of your book, the one, the one that Alan Bates tells. Yeah, that's such a great story. So apparently my dad and Coral, his third wife, Coral Brown, and Alan Bates were all at dinner, and a woman came over and asked my dad for uh, an autograph. And so my dad um, signed something, and Alan Bates happened to see what he had signed. And when the woman left, my dad said, uh, Alan Bates said to my dad, Vincent, you're out of your mind. You know, why did you sign Dolores Del Rio? That woman's going to come over and pour soup <laughs> over our head. And uh, my dad said, well, before she died, Dolores said, never let him forget me. So now I always sign Dolores Del Rio. I wow. love that. I love that. Okay, now I'm going to have to wrap up the show with a quote from the revered film critic Leonard Moulton. Leonard Moulton said, other actors may have made better movies, but few lived better lives or touched so many people with their warmth and gentility. And he said that about your father, the great Vincent Price. You know, I've had a very fortunate life. I have met my life, and I don't think I've ever met anyone who was as interesting, as consistently kind, as curious, and who managed to always find a way to say yes every day to life as my dad. And, you know, if you had told me when I was a teenager in my early 20s that I'd be in my 50s going around talking about my dad, I think I might have shot myself. And now (laughs) I am so grateful. You know, I'm so grateful that I have the good fortune of knowing somebody, being the child of somebody as extraordinary as my dad. Oh, that's so nice and sweet. Well, we're, we're, we're grateful. You know, we grew up on on him. And you know, as I'm sitting here at Gilbert's dining room table, I'm looking across the room and I see your, uh, the life mask of your dad staring at me mm. from the wall. So obviously my co-host, he meant something to you as well. Yeah. He's there with all the other horror greats. Yeah. Janie Jr., Bela Lugosi, and, and of course Al Pacino. And of course Al Pacino. <laughs> Who was so great <laughs> in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen i'm gilbert gottfried uh this has been gilbert gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host frank santo padre and we have been talking to the uh very gracious and lovely Victoria Price about her father, the great actor Vincent Price. Thanks, Victoria. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been a real, real pleasure. Can we have Gilbert take you out with a little bit of the tingler? Oh, Oh, yes. (laughs) Run! Run for your lives! The tingler is loose in the theater! Everyone scream! (laughs) Scream for your lives! The tingler is loose in the theater! Scream! Scream for your lives! (laughs) The movie will resume shortly. (laughs) 
Victoria, this that. was this was a treat. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming Thank on the show. Thank you guys so much. It we'll, was a blast. We'll see you when you're in New York, okay? I look forward to it. Bye-bye. Happy Halloween. Take care. Same to you.